Welcome to Careers in Discovery, your window into the world of leaders in pharma and biotech. Brought to you by Singular Talent, making hiring better for organizations involved in drug discovery and R&D. Darren Disley is an ex-professional footballer, scientist, OBE, investor and advisor to over 40 companies, serial entrepreneur, one of the founders of Horizon Discovery and now CEO of Mogrify, a company intent on changing the face of cell therapy. In this week's episode, we talked about Darren's unique journey and he shared his fascinating insights into creating enough freedom to become an entrepreneur, how to raise money on your own terms, his principles for entrepreneurship, self-development and career development, his four R's of success, and how multidisciplinary science is coming together to build the future. This week, I'm joined by Darren Disley, CEO of Mogrify, angel investor, serial entrepreneur. Darren, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Look forward to it. Now, Darren, I'm, I'm not sure I've done justice to all the things that you're variously involved in with that introduction. So could you start by just telling everyone listening a bit about who you are, what you're up to at the moment, and then it'd be great to talk a bit about Mogrify. So at the, fundamentally, I'm a, a scientist, PhD here in Cambridge in biotechnology, but I've spent the last 25 years developing how you apply that science commercially mm-hmm. and that's led to a number of types of roles really so from entrepreneurship starting and growing and investing over 40 companies uh, about 12 of those that I've been either in co-founder of or a very early member of the ma- management team and it's uh, eventually led me into being more of a role of a, a CEO yes. you know, in terms of being the, the ultimate person who's responsible for the, the strategy execution and governance of a business and delivering returns for investors. Yes I see and your main project currently is Mogrify? Yes so I'm currently uh, I came out of semi-retirement having stood down <laughs> as uh, CEO of Horizon Discovery after some traveling I came back and got involved with Mogrify. Uh, Mogrify to me represents the essence of what's great about Cambridge you know and truly world-class piece of science that Mm. brings together Cambridge with multiple institutions around the world and they've developed a platform technology that enables you to take a cell of any different age or state and convert it directly into any other human cell of any age or state without going through what's called stem cell state. So what that fundamentally means is you could regenerate old cells into young cells, disease cells into healthy cells, or if you needed a cell type, think of the modern thing of cancer immunotherapy. Mm -hmm. If you want a T cell therapy, but you can't manufacture the T cells at scale, well you can manufacture another cell at scale and then convert it at scale to the T cell. So it's quite a universally applicable technology for developing therapies yourselves or enabling others. Yes. That's quite a leap forward from how that kind of conversion is being done currently. Yes, yeah, so historically people have used the you know, amazing science of uh, Yamanaka and mm-hmm. Gurdon here in Cambridge uh, in terms of winning the Nobel Prize. They set the path, if you like, of identifying four factors out of the 2,000 transcription factors in the body. That's yes. 10, 10 to the 21 potential possibilities combinations by studying less than 50, they found over a decade the four Yamanaka factors that Mm -hmm. led to the whole field of stem cell reprogramming. Now the challenge with that is it's based on expert educated trial and error around there. It's not a systematic approach. And if you were to try and do this in 10 to the 21 possibilities, you'd be around for many, many decades with all the scientists <laughs> in the world to try and sort of deconvolve that. So what Mogrify has done is take the approach, the identification of the factors that are important for conversion, but it's not trying to follow developmental biology. 
what you're trying to do is identify the number of interventions in your starting cell type that are going to lead to it to flip. Think of it almost like thermodynamics, energetically flip okay. to another state. So you've identified effectively the factors that will control the fate of any cell. Yes, I see. Yeah. So there's clearly a significant time and cost implication there. Yeah. But you also mentioned that you can you can take aged cells and regenerate them and take disease cells and, and change them to healthy cells, yes. which is, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's a similar principle to us. Every cell type or state is a, just a source cell type. Right. And once you understand the source, and then you, you understand where you want to take it to, so if you've got a disease cell, you take the disease cell, and then you compare it to the, the target cell, the healthy cell, mm -hmm. and look for, if you like, the map of potential differences, and then you use Mogrify to identify the number of interventions and the specific interventions that are going to give you at least 98% of effectively the coverage that's going to get you to the converted state. Yes, okay. And, and so you're developing therapies based on that technology? Yes, so there, there's, there's two things that we do. We develop uh, therapies directly, and our mm -hmm. focus is on uh, diseases where the conversion is the disease. So I'll give you an example. Our lead programs are, are in uh, cartilage implantation and osteoarthritis. They're both one type of cell mm -hmm. called chondrocytes. And say, for example, in the case of osteoarthritis, as we all get old, as we know we do, yes. your, your cartilage and your, your chondrocytes they de-differentiate, they effectively you know, fall, fall to pieces, they no longer can bear loads, etc. So that's how you get the inflammation and you get osteoarthritis. And all the drugs currently are just about how you treat symptoms. Okay. So what we've done is identify uh, for both of these programs, for these applications, the factors that will cause the conversion of damaged chondrocytes to healthy functional chondrocytes. Yes. And in the implantation stage, it's a cell we create that can be implanted to the cartilage, or if you're trying to reprogram the damaged osteoarthritic cartilage, you're effectively putting a small molecule combination into the joint, and it actually reprograms the cells in the joint. And that's like a real revolutionary new concept I see. in therapy called in vivo or in situ. Yes, I see. Okay. And you mentioned earlier that you were more or less semi-retired when Mogrify came along. So was it just too big a scientific opportunity to miss? Or Yes, it was, right. really. I mean, I, I, in order to, to come back, I'm really interested in, in, in therapeutic interventions can have a major impact uh, in the world. I mean, mm. and, uh, you know one of your former podcasters, Ajahn Reginald, yes. the CEO of Selixir, I'm the chair of Selixir, yes. and that's another you know, Nobel laureate scientist fundamental platform technology that could have major impact on heart regenerative medicine and mm -hmm. oncology medicine. And here was the same. I was familiar with Mogrify from the Nature paper in 2016, when scientists who are now here with me at Mogrify were at Horizon, yes. and they brought that to me then and said, this is the future of cell therapy. And uh, we believed that, but we believed it needed a bit more cooking around there. And then just so happened opportunistically, when I was around on my travels, I was introduced to the to the founders and we got to know each other when I came back. Yes, uh, I see. I, it was too good an opportunity, so I invested, became the CEO in February this year, and we've had a spectacular first year so far. <laughs> good to hear. And I've certainly seen uh, Mogrify around in, in lots yeah, of places. It's, it's growing very, very rapidly. Yeah. Much quicker than Horizon did in the first number <laughs> of years, that's for sure. Different type of companies. Of course, of course. And so, as you said, you, you came on board as CEO, yeah. and you know we've had a number of CEOs on the podcast, and they all define their role slightly differently. Yeah. Um, tell us a bit about what you do. Yeah, so the three areas that I, I play in are in what's called strategy, execution, and governance. But let's 
that's quite technical. So let's think about it from an entrepreneur, a young person who may be starting their own business mm-hmm. or thinking of going into this world, well, what does it actually mean? Well, you start a company typically because you've got a, a vision. You know, this is the mountain we're going to climb right. around there. Well, what's the strategy by which we're going to get up there? You know, where do we play? Which routes do we go up that mountain? What are the winning strategies of getting up the top of the mountain? And how do we organize the team in order to be able to get to the top of the mountain? Mm-hmm. That's strategy. Yes. So as a CEO and an entrepreneur and a founding entrepreneur, that's where I focus a lot of my time around there. Then you've got to execute, of course. You can't do it alone. So it's how do you build uh, the talent that is necessary and align that group of talent to the common purpose of mm-hmm. how we get to the top of that mountain. That's the sort of leadership element around yes. there. So you know, you, you've got to define the company objectives, the team objectives, the individual objectives, and make sure that everyone is bought in mm-hmm. to what they do when they come in, you know, what success looks like, how do they measure it, and if it's not been successful, how do they change course? Yes. Right the way down to the individual. So everyone knows their purpose in the organization, and you would say that's the leadership Mm-hmm. element right there and so once you've got your execution plans the bit that people are really poor on and I think a CEO has to be very good on is governance because that's how you manage all the stakeholders yes around there you, you you know how are you going to be accountable for, to all the stakeholders for the execution of the strategy and mm-hmm. delivery against the, the big goals so that's about how you monitor it you don't just run up a mountain in route one and never measure anything and then you look back and you don't know actually even what you've done wrong. How can you change course if you don't know what you've actually done? So how do you monitor the progress? How do you bring all the stakeholders along? Your fellow colleagues, your management team, your board, your investors, because the more educated they are in understanding the risk rewards of all the different parts you can take, Mm -hmm. and you're giving them accurate information there. When it looks different, which it will, even in the most successful companies, it will look different. No one follows route one and gets there on day one, right? So then they can help you make the in-flight adjustments that you need mm-hmm. around there. So my job, effectively, as a leader is to align the stakeholders to the common purpose and bring people along with the journey of, of rapid growth, knowing that it will be a bumpy journey, even in the good companies, and manage them through the bumps. Mm-hmm. Makes That's sense. That's what a CEO does. Yes, so it's very much about direction and focus. Direction and focus, yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and we'll talk about your your journey to to today um and very interested to get into that um but as you said you 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 joined the industry as a scientist um are there things that 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 scientific background helps you with as ceo are there things that you think has have transferred from that early training yes uh, for me i think scientists fundamentally should make good business people okay right as long as they don't go too deep sometimes the 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 enemy of scientists in business is they are such experts in a very what relatively narrow area around there that that sometimes can get in the way because as a as a ceo you kind of have to be a broad generalist Mm -hmm. semi-expert in you know all areas of uh, you know of strategy execution governance of operations finance etc the science the application the business development and you you kind of too much depth can get in the way of that but you need to have confidence to operate at that high level now for me as a scientist i i found that business i, ha- I have no business qualifications right around there but a scientist has a big vision they have hypothesis mm. they come up with a strategy for testing that hypothesis and then they follow diligently the, the different routes they could take to yes. the hypothesis and they make adjustments in order to be out there based on evidence around there and then they report against that mm-hmm. in a way that people can follow and 
extrapolate and develop, right? So to me, that's very much akin to what a, a, a business plan is, how people develop their, their business. Of course. Um, so for me, that learning was great. And the second thing that science brought me was a confidence. You know, mm. someone who left school before my 16th birthday, ostensibly to try and be a professional footballer, right. got into education much later. Uh, when I came to somewhere like Cambridge, it was a breakthrough at the time, not because of the Harry Potter dinners and the big spires, <laughs> well, that's interesting. It was actually that I could compete in an environment that's considered a, of a much higher standard with people who I thought were my you know, academic betters, my social betters, etc. So for me personally, science, PhD was essential to build the confidence that was necessary to start trusting myself to extrapolate my knowledge and take risks. Yes. As somebody come from a poorer background. Interesting. And I, that confidence, I think, is really key isn't it because as a CEO you have to take decisions that you're not always 100% sure that it's the right thing to do you've got to back yourself indeed I mean there are some certain decisions you have to make as a a CEO there's a lot of it which is you know good practice yes and a lot of people can help you with that but there is no such thing as perfect information and most people I've learned you know in their life they talk about their aspiration but they're defined by their fears Mm. those fears come from all the product of up mm-hmm. their insecurities etc around there and you have all of those as a, as a CEO yes. but you don't have the luxury of not making a decision one of my fundamentals is that no decision is not a decision yes yes but even beyond that one thing I learned from the, the great Jonathan Milner here in, in Cambridge who I've worked with quite a lot has been a mentor even more important is the timing of a decision is as important as the decision itself so yes People think entrepreneurs are risky. You do have to make decisions, mm. but on balance of risk and reward, and when you understand as best you can the risk, you'll make the, the decision. But the timing that you make it is key. It's not just about rushing out there and yes. charging up the mountain blind. Yes, yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And you've touched on your your early days, I suppose, or, mm. or how you got into science. And I'm really interested to to hear more about that because I think it's a, a very different story to some of the people that we've had on so far. Yeah, I guess uh, in some cases it's uh, quite an improbable one. You know, when you live <laughs> it, it seems kind of like uh, there. And the one thing I should tell you before I say any of this is that there was no plan sure. to this. And I'll try and give you some elements of why I think it led to opportunity, even though it was quite an unusual sort of path. You know, I was born into a, a poor family in the East End of London. There was no sense of education being important. You know, people had talents and gifts. Uh, but they weren't necessarily directed towards mm. academic education. And I was one of those. You know, I, I was not focused at school, very much uh, interested in sport, you know, jack of all trades at sport. I was very good at football, got picked up uh, by West Ham United mm-hmm. as, a, as a youth, uh, went through those different sort of phases. Was interested in some aspects of school. Science was interesting, you know, I okay. chemistry. But at 13, I was told I wasn't good enough to get in the one class uh, to do sort of O-level chemistry, so wow. that was the end of chemistry for me. Yes. When you think of the career I ended up having through chemistry, etc., that's a, that's very strange. Mm-hmm. But there were inspirational figures, and a school teacher called Brian Carline, who had a real impact on me later on, after I'd left school, uh, got me really interested in the old concept of you know human biology, anatomy, physiology, uh, various things like that, the first concepts of sorts of things that might you know be important in the future, although nothing like the genome. Sure. Yes. Along with them, got me really interested in that as a as a concept. But I then focused on what I was good at, and I left school with just before my sixteenth birthday. Never took any qualifications okay. at all, uh, and went to try and play professional football. And I had periods with West Ham, Southampton United, Charlton Athletic, and, and it became very clear that I was not going to make it at the highest level. Mm. And so I, I ended up working as a lab technician in an apprenticeship. 
okay. for three years for Red Ken, Ken Livingston, in right. the Education Authority. Yes. And I did a three-year apprenticeship. I played semi-professional football uh, at the same time, went to college, got good qualifications. And in my last year, I would travel to, to work with Brian Carline, who was a deputy headmaster at Highbury Grove School, which is very near I where I was. And he said, well, you seem to be interested in academics more than you're interested in this job now. Mm. And he goes, well, why don't you go to university? don't have any qualifications yes I think you'll find you do and he was from Salford and uh, so he said well you know chemistry is a great area you know biotech hadn't mm-hmm. happened yet uh, chemistry is a good way to go it was astro- you know what was Zeneca back yes. then etc and the northwest is fantastic yes to do that so I went to, to Salford and uh, ended up doing pretty well there mm-hmm. uh, didn't know what I wanted to do I was going to go to Princeton to do my PhD I got in to Princeton and then I got an interview here at University of Cambridge mm. Institute of Biotechnology and I went to see Professor Chris Lowe, who turns out is one of the pioneers of entrepreneurship and, and biotech, not just here in Cambridge, but across the UK. Sure. And that was really the sort of tipping point. Did my PhD, did very, did very well, uh, did a postdoc, set up a small business at the end of my postdoc. Mm. Wasn't quite yet ready, went backpacking for a year okay. <laughs> on $10 a day, it's yes. 67 countries. Came back and the breakthrough came when I got a job at the technology partnership. Mm. And uh, what I learned there, and I'm really good friends with the people there, the, the leadership there today, is is how you develop a business plan around a sort of multidisciplinary set of technology. We're developing uh, high content screening equipment at the very beginning of the cell-based sort of assay screening area. I see. And we built a consortium called Acumen with AstraZeneca and Aventus as mm-hmm. co-funders. So business plan, non-dilutive funding, development of technology, launch and market of technology. Yeah. And that division, what became TTV LabTech, got bought by Dan Hare last year. So after about 20 odd, odd years. Yes. Uh, I came out of that after a period and then I started setting up my own businesses and that's where my career's gone. I see. Yeah. At what point did that entrepreneurial bug hit you, do you think? I always try to do this, and I try not to post-rationalize things, right? I don't think uh, the concept of entrepreneur existed in my in my mm-hmm. head. What what did exist in my head is I was I grew up in even a poor background, an aspirational culture. My parents were aspirational. They had weaknesses and limitations, but they always thought what could be better around there, right? And in many ways, they were quite inspirational. That's the second piece. You know, that fifty-five, they weren't the parents who were sitting at home ready for the rocking chair. They were right. windsurfing around the island. Why my dad was competing in the British Jet Ski Championships wow. in the early days of jet skiing, and they were quite inspirational in the sense of you know this. And they never had. There was no concept of fear. Okay. As we were allowed to try everything around there, but once we started it, we had to at least finish it to an intermediate level. We couldn't pick up as I did the trombone. <laughs> flute every instrument you could imagine I couldn't play a note and when I wanted to put it down after four weeks there was no such thing as putting it down I see you must at least take it to the first proficiency level and then you can stop and, and so we had no fear and there's the first step with entrepreneurship I came from a poor background we would try to be defined by aspiration rather than rather than fear mm-hmm. right? and I was told you had to be a, a finisher yes around there so there were some fundamentals there so whatever job I went into, I didn't go into TTP about being, you know, how we might set up a consortium and a business around there. But my natural drive, focus, I was quite applied scientifically yes. around there was, was really what the sort of skill sets that were conducive for this. And then what I tried to do was not systematize it, but at least apply those same things. Because I realized very early on that society values starter finishes the most mm-hmm. around there. There are lots of starters and they can do well. Most yes. people are builders. And they can 
These are not better than the other, they're just different types. And there are very few who can start, build and finish. Yes. And that's what I aspired to be once I realised that I thought that would be important. I see. Yeah. Finding the good projects is then a different matter. Sure. <laughs> um, well, let's talk a little bit about your your sort of early entrepreneurial days, because I suppose the people that know you and have heard about you probably know you from Horizon Discovery, but that wasn't your first No, venture. quite a lot of different ones. Yes. So if I go back to the back end of my... A PhD and postdoc, you know, postdoc uh, set up a small uh, product design consulting business with a, a group of engineers, a group of industrial designers, uh, etc., and some graphic designers. And we started selling projects how we could design um, ergonomically design laboratory equipment and things. And, and you know, these some of these products still exist in people's catalogs. Mm-hmm. But I got the experience of working in a team without a big company behind you, actually selling projects to people, yes. and actually delivering projects with products there and we made some money uh, so that was really fundamental I learned the concept that if you, you know, we talked about aspiration and fear people talk about their uh, goals and then they don't make the decisions that are necessary to give themselves mm-hmm. a chance of getting them and one of them is creating enough space and freedom if you need the paycheck every single month and you've never got a three months pay in the bank you can never tell your boss I'm going to leave mm. around there and this has happened a couple of times in my career so why I'm mentioning it is that enabled me to get a, a little bit of freedom and I used it to go traveling, but when I came back, I had that mindset. And when I then spun companies out you know, of, of TTP, I then did another one out of Sergentia, the mm-hmm. University of Glasgow and Imperial College. And the third consulting group I went into to spin companies out of was PA Consulting, a great company. Yes. And I had a fantastic role there on the track for associate partnership, all sorts of things. I lasted three days and walked out the back door <laughs> and never worked for anyone else ever again around there. I think I just reached that sort of point where... You know, I, I felt I could do it myself, and I felt that I wanted to do it myself. And the most important thing is I had six months' money in the bank. Yes. And I hadn't upscaled my life at every stage. You know, all the things that are good, mm. upscaling your life, married, kids, etc. So I was in a position to be able to take that chance. And that was fundamental to me, because uh, growing up in the East End, if you didn't have the education, intellectual freedom, you didn't have a bit of fiscal freedom, because you'd been defined by your fear of never having yes. the money to pay the bills, I'd have never taken that step out on my own yes yeah. fair so enough that was the key to me so building that cushion yeah. is, is really key for me it was yeah everyone has their own measure mine was of freedom Intellect, I measure intellectual freedom and I measure a little bit of fiscal freedom and it just changes depend- people think you have to be rich in order to make those decisions you don't you need to be intellectually free mm. you need to have a skill set that you can position well to set up your own business or take make a change in your life and you have to not need to pay the bills that next month Yes. It has to be a few months. It doesn't need to be years. It yes. needs to be a few months. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. And so um, tell us a bit about Horizon Discovery then, because that was a that was a great um, journey, I'm sure, yes, and, and a indeed, real indeed. success story. Indeed. So there's a lot of parallels uh, with Mogadvai. Actually, mm-hmm. you know, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll bring some to them, bring it back to that in a moment. Uh, but that was a great example of, uh, in my view, of... Cambridge, the sort of Cambridge environment coming together could only have happened really here in somewhere like Cambridge. Okay. So you had scientific founders who had identified that gene editing was going to be important at some point. It mm-hmm. was to solve a particular problem for them. How do we, you know, we're cancer geneticists, how do we actually model disease? And it used to take years to try and do, make one model. Yes. And they would invariably fail 50% of the time. And they identified the technology, which became Horizon's technology, mm. RAV gene editing. Uh, but it was too early. Because gene editing, the market, is defined by DNA sequencing. And right. when they started 
as a virtual entity, like in 2005, DNA sequencing was many tens of millions to do one sequence. And that, if there's no questions, there's no need for answers. Mm. When I got involved in the second half of 2007, through my PhD supervisor, who's number two, Geraldine was now running Cambridge University Seed Funds. I see. Around there, they got in touch with me and I met with Chris Torrance uh, first. Um, and it was still millions of dollars to sequence a genome. Mm. But, so the whole idea initially with Horizon was how do we do make it a small business around, around there. And, but what we did see was dominant IP around a technology that was being approached for therapy, but the research application markets potentially could grow. Yes. And that's what we did. We funded it as an orphan project. University of Cambridge, Jonathan Milner, myself, and my business partner, Paul Morell, who's Elvis, CBO Elvis right now, right. around there. So we got involved with that right at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Around there, we then focused on delivery, and we delivered you know, break-even and profit in the first two years with yes. a rapidly growing company. But then the sequencing costs came down, and the markets came up. So we went from being this sort of niche sort of opportunity, if you like, to having to start build a company. Yes. And so we then started building a company. Now, the good thing was, it was a reasonably mature team, way of saying old. <laughs> right? relatively speaking to the young entrepreneurs that are coming out today right. so we were quite willing you know, to look at strategy, execution, governance we built a business that was organically already profitable and growing and then it was a matter of how do we build that business mm. around there and so I took the lead in terms of uh, drive, driving, driving that on but everyone contributed sort of yes. greatly into that business around there and there were key things that were happening as we went through that process was you know, we had to amend the strategy as the markets shifted as we identified new opportunities, the things that are now dominant in Horizon's revenue model, biomanufacturing, diagnostic reagents, etc., the RNAi, mm -hmm. the Darmacon stuff didn't exist back then. Yeah. So we weren't obsessed with our own innovation. Our AV was the most precise gene editing technique, wasn't the most flexible. So we adopted zinc finger nucleases. We nearly did talons as well. We invented new transposons. We were the first licensors of all the CRISPR IP globally. Mm -hmm. So we were always moving fast. We weren't tied to our own innovation and we were constantly applied around there. But the th biggest strength that we had was, in my view, what I did well there was I was really good at aligning the stakeholders. Right. You know, when Cambridge University says we gave them the Ferrari of experiences, mm -hmm. they made 30 times their money at IPO, 11 times they got back after the first 18 months. Yes. We constantly over-delivered on plans. We raised money when we didn't need it. We created secondary markets. So seven million went back to founders pre-IPO, millions back in commissions to, mm -hmm. to people like myself, etc. So everyone was constantly realigned to the future. And then when we needed venture capital to horsepower it, it came in on our terms. Right. And that got us into a position where when we had the opportunity to IPO in good times, you know, it was all there before us. And what we did was a proper IPO, it was a massive IPO yeah. around there, and it enabled us very quickly to go on the acquisition spree to build scale into the business mm. around there. So whilst many things could happen to Horizon now, right, no one can argue it's 12, 13 years, it's continuing to be one of the biggest employers here. Yes. It could always be acquired as a public company, you know, etc. But there's a real chance for it to be a long-term sustainable business mm -hmm. that has impact, and that's what we wanted to do. Yes. Yeah. So for me, that I was very proud of the way we built the business. It's not about market capitalization at the end, because in gene editing, Horizon is the number one globally revenue. Mm -hmm. Not the number one by value, because some of the therapeutic gene editing companies get billion dollar plus valuations, even though they yet haven't made one dollar yes. of revenue because they're therapies yes. around there. So I was very proud that we built from nothing 
to a global market leader by revenue. Mm -hmm. It's a much harder business to run a business like Horizon than it is, say, a Mogrify, which is a much simpler, you know, therapeutic businesses are much simpler to run than a very complex services, products, numerous markets, plus yes. research, global science, etc. Yeah, very yeah. different than a, than a small biotech with 100 people developing a couple of therapies. Sure. And there's something you've mentioned a couple of times that I'm interested in, and we, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of your principles as well that you've developed, which I'm interested yeah. to get into, but there's yeah. twice, I think, or three times now you've mentioned revenue and profit, and mm -hmm. those aren't words that often get mentioned in biotech. Yes. And I appreciate biotech is expensive, and of course venture money is important, yeah. um, but in some ways it seems that um, people have forgotten about revenue, and people have forgotten Indeed. about Indeed, I mean, there's a... A really excellent phrase, and Richard Bellacott, CFO Horizon, used to use it a lot. Revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, mm -hmm. and cash is king. Around there, if you generate profit, you're generating cash. You're sure. in control of your own destiny out right there. Now, different types of businesses have different times at which they have to turn their innovation through growth into value, mm. cash. So there is a timing, a continuum. So you wouldn't expect a biotech like Mogrify right now to be focused on revenue per se, other than it's a great validation of the model. Mm -hmm. You can bring the more money you put cash you bring in, the more flexibility you have, the more confidence you build in investors, etc. But you're not trying to create repeatable, visible revenue streams that you can predict every year. If right. I do X units of activity, I'll get Y units of profit around there, right? But at some point you do. Yes. Now you may have IPO'd, you may have sold, but people will be buying you on the fact you've delivered the value inflection that's demonstrated that at some point your innovation is going to translate to therapeutics that will generate sustainable long-term revenues mm -hmm. for either you as a company or as your partner company or your acquirer yes. around there. So there's always a link. It's just the timing of the link to profit. Sure. So whatever company I'm involved with, and, and I would say Paul Morrell at Elvis would think exactly the same way about this because you know how much flexibility it gives you mm. if you bring in cash around there, is you're always thinking, what's the value inflection at which you can demonstrate to your stakeholders and new stakeholders coming in and partners that you, you're closer to be able to turning it into cash. Yes. Now with Horizon, you could demonstrate it, right? You know, we were cash generative or break even in the first two years. Right. But then we elected to, deal, to go for growth. Mm. And if you look where they're at now, around there, they're going to look at 90, 95 million dollars of revenue this year and generating cash. When we went to IPO, you'd have looked out to 2019 there wouldn't have been forecast half of that revenue right so that's what the benefit of the IPO the acquisitions etc so, so you elect to come below the line mm -hmm. and then you come up and you you turn to value which Terry is driving now yes. around there at a much bigger number around there but a biotech needs to think exactly the same this is where they make mistakes mm. around there right every pound has to be a pound invested right there has to be a return to what you're doing it's not spend Sure. People sometimes think, oh, it doesn't matter, someone else is going to buy this therapy. But at some point, you're diluting the value mm. of what you're doing and you're not focusing the money in the right areas. Because, you know, and that's, I don't think there's any difference in the discipline between a services company, products company, and a therapeutic company. Differences in the time at which you convert to value. But the mindset should be the same. Yes, interesting. Yeah. And as you say, it allows you a lot more flexibility. You mentioned being able to bring in investors on your own terms. Absolutely. And... For this round, we just did with Mogrify, for example, we didn't even have to open up. A round, right? And the reason we started in February, we had one employee mm -hmm. around there, and then we just did the seed round. No, you know, we signed the 
the announcement we just did recently, we actually signed the legals at the end of July. Yes. On a $16 million first close. And the reason we had investors willing to come in from term sheet to completion, as in its legal signing, in three to four weeks, was strategy, very clear, team, and the execution of all the pieces was absolutely spot on. Mm -hmm. Governance, absolutely essential. We built massive confidence. This company is run like a public company around there, right? Board papers you'd expect of a public company yes. around there. And, and total transparency. It's not a science project that you're trying to prolong yeah. the job creation scheme. And so therefore you build confidence in the investor base. You get the deal done quickly. And all of the other investors, of which there are many tens, never even got to have a look at it. Mm -hmm. They haven't gone anywhere. Yes. They're still incredibly excited. Yes. But now they'll come in and they'll pay a lot more for it later on. Of and this, this is the virtuous circle, right? Creating a buzz about, but you can't just create it with spin. Mm. You've got to do, you've got to have a clear strategy. People understand. You've got to execute, and you've got to submit to governance. Right. A lot of companies they see it as a rite of passage doing a startup out of a university or a young entrepreneur. Yes. And they're good at long on strategy. Under promise, and so they over promise, under deliver on execution, and they won't submit to governance. Mm. They'll obfuscate, they'll report anecdotally. And I know this because I'm an investor in 40 <laughs> odd companies, and, the, and yeah. the really good ones that say, for example, me and Jonathan Milner are involved with Helix, Geospoc, all of these types of companies, Simprints, another one I mentioned this mm -hmm. year, they do not behave like that. They behave like proper companies yes. and, and look at the results of these companies. Then you get others that are passive investor in and you look at it as the usual basket case of, <laughs> of errors. And I, I guess that you, you sort of see this as you go out to raise money, actually mm. running a business in the right way helps you with that because investors are pretty good at sniffing out the BS. And they are, yeah. right? And they, they, they understand. It's a partnership. Yes. Right? It's not about being sycophantic. You know, investors know with me, there are some investors who won't invest in my companies mm -hmm. because they know it's going to be a tough ride. Right. But it won't be a tough ride because of lack of transparency, obfuscation, it's just there'll be no BS. Right? Mm -hmm. There'll be, my job is to align all stakeholders for the benefit of all stakeholders, whether you hold one share or whether you're a 20% global investment fund. Yes. Right? There is no favorites in there. And company, I trust that if you, if you deliver your strategy execution, you submit to governance and you do a horizon, its success was not the market cap. As I said, the success was people made money in direct proportion to the stage they came in the risk they took. Mm -hmm. Now, some people don't like that. <laughs> some people want to skew the skew. They want to take lower risk, and they want most of the reward right. at the end. And with Horizon, that didn't happen. Yes. So the early investors made up to fifty x returns, and then it came through the thirties, the twenties, the tens, the VCs who came in late and left. Nothing wrong. They made two x, three x, four x. That's a great return. Yeah. But a lot of the risk had gone from the business by the time sure, they come in, and that's how it should be. Yeah. So from, from, from my perspective, investors do sniff it out around there. And what I'm finding out now, because I've done it with a few businesses now, they actually say, actually, it's worth a slightly, we'll just trust. If we build a great business that's constantly growing in a great area around there, and we let it's really well managed with transparency, we're brought along, our interests are served. Mm -hmm. yeah, rather than let's go in and try and skew the equation slightly in our favor. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, so we've got into there and and previously some of the principles that you operate by, yeah. and, and I'm really interested in that. So if there was a set of principles that you were yeah. to give to aspiring entrepreneurs, what what would they be? What are the things that you've really learned over the course of? Yes, I mean the, the when 
I've been doing a lot of personal development plans actually with the early employees here. I've done sure. hundred, many hundreds of these, and they're very much focused on looking at your your career, your your personal journey beyond career. They they they've got to be intertwined. Get, think of it: you spend a third of your time sleeping, third mm -hmm. of time with the people you love, and a third of less time, if not more, at work. Mm -hmm. So you have to look at life holistically, right? Because it has to work holistically. Yeah. So I I try to focus people on three areas really. One is about um, alignment around there and so I start to I try to get people to look at their their fundamentals as human beings you know if you like learning you know why do you like learning understand why how does it affect all aspects of life? is it learning for learning's sake right. is it learning because you want to be a world expert in something what do you want to understand there if it's authenticity what does authenticity mean to you around there does it mean like for me I don't have to be formal I don't have to go in and run someone else's business late stage and pretend I'm something I'm not mm -hmm. and if it's impact what impact so these are fundamentals right whereas people tend to be focused on these destinations of my job title etc so what I get people to do is understand the fundamentals and how they cut across their life yes around there because they will stay there for the rest of your life functionally what I'd say is well, okay your job is like a cake deconstruct that cake Mm -hmm. Don't name it. Right, Something. okay. Deconstruct yeah. what are the ingredients that make up the perfect cake job role, if you like, and break that down into things that functionally align to your fundamentals. So alignment is the is is the first thing I would say people make sure you're doing things day in, day out that you know why you're getting up, why it's important to you, mm -hmm. your family, loved ones, etc., why it's important to the company, what success looks like, how you measure it. So functionally get those things aligned. Then the one that people are not very good at is reflection. Okay. Because we live in a system where you measure your success on a relative measure against peer groups constructed of seven billion people in hierarchical structures that you have nothing to do with creating, yet you're judging your entire self-worth and feeling <laughs> of success versus those those groups of people yes. around there. And it encourages you, and you know, you'd be familiar with this in the in the recruitment industry, you are your resume. Well, I would argue your resume is an artificial construct. It's mm. the best you that ever existed. It lacks reflection because it projects, as society wants you to, your strengths. You're further ahead than you are in your actual career, which has a real sort of impact on, you know, I've heard the word imposter syndrome a lot with young scientists and, and things like this because they've been asked to project themselves much further on in their careers than they actually are right. in order to chase these higher roles and greater pay. Whereas what I encourage them to do is to actually look back and say, what are your strengths? Yes, but every strength or combination of strengths yields a weakness. Ambition is great, blind ambition not so much. Mm. Ambition with uh, big vision but no attention to detail can also lead to sort of blindness. But And everyone has different sort of strengths and mm -hmm. they're really important to understand. But you've got to understand you know, what are the consequences of these different strengths? What blind sides do they give you? Yes. And then finally, we all have fundamental weaknesses. Otherwise, we wouldn't be defined by our fears. We'd be defined entirely by our aspirations. Mm. There are fundamental things that happen as a product of childhood, as a product of environment, culture you've lived in, etc. that are, they potentially stop you from doing the things that you want to do. So I get people to understand a lot about this sort of, this is where I am now, this is me around here and then this is where I am is the next piece right because I want the bridge I want to create is from where I am actually now in order to get to that end point of functionally doing things day to day that align to my fundamental human needs maximize my strengths minimize my weakness the impact of my weaknesses then I can start thinking about what success is yes so this is the other thing understand what success is right and success to me is a feeling you know you can feel free you mm. can feel 
happy. You could, it's a feeling, right? It's not a destination. Otherwise, you'd never have people who achieve destinations. I know people who have made 100 million and they would kill their grandmother to make another 100 million. <laughs> and that's all that drives them. And yes. I can only think because they don't feel successful. Otherwise, you wouldn't have double Oscar winners committing suicide and, and various things like this. So I ask people to think about feeling of, of success. Then we can deconstruct it. And say if it's freedom, okay, is it intellectual freedom? Is mm. it fiscal freedom? Is it work balance life? Uh, is it balance of products? And you can start measuring these things. So I that's so my encouragement is for people, and I do so much of this with young entrepreneurs. I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> just think about success as a journey, not a series of destinations. To be honest. and think about it holistically. You need to be able to get a measure of how you're doing, and your success cannot be defined by others. So that's the first thing. Don't define your success by others mm. don't define it by job title because that's how you end up putting so much of your self-worth into your job title and having worked with thousands of people I've employed and various things like that it's amazing how much of people's self-worth they put into their job title yes yes right around because I could care less yeah. I care less about what I'm doing every day I don't need to be a CEO to learn something new to be authentic to who I am and to have impact on the issues I care about mm -hmm. I can do it via charity not for profit I could do it in a think tank. I, there, there are lots of different things, but there are benefits to doing it as a CEO of a science company. I'm a scientist. Around yes. So that's all I would encourage is a greater sense of, of self-reflection and understand. Because people don't like to reflect. It's much easier mm. to project. I wasn't given the opportunity. Someone else did this to me. Whereas I, the other thing I would encourage in reflection is always look at yourself when things go wrong and say, what did I contribute to this situation? Yes. Even if someone has done something to you, you put yourself in that situation. Mm -hmm. So be reflective. So that's the bit, you've got my four R's that I sent you. Resourcefulness, resilience, reflection, reciprocity. Most people are capable of being resourceful. Mm -hmm. Many people are capable of being resilient. Not everyone, but they are. Very few people show good signs of reflection. And reciprocity, people think it's about giving things to charity. Whereas it's not, it's about asymmetric risk. Okay. You know, taking putting skin in the game if you like there are vast chunks of society that only take part in the upside of, of any situation yes corporate banking quite a lot of advisory work and I've, I've worked in a lot of these areas around there right <laughs> but I find often you become better aligned and connected to your reality and what success is if you take risk mm -hmm. in there right you don't just participate in the upside so why am I a big startup company how many times do you think I've got opportunities to go and run more public companies on very big salaries, walking around the city, pulling the wool over people's eyes, yeah. massaging the share price, you know, blah, 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 and making lots of money around it? One, because it doesn't align to my fundamentals, but two, I wanted to go back to the beginning mm -hmm. and say, you know, put my reputation on the line. Because I don't care if you've built 10 businesses that have been a billion dollars each, you don't know definitively how to do it. Yes. You know how to bias the equation of success in your favour. Right? And, and it doesn't help, it's why I like what you're doing, right? It doesn't help young entrepreneurs, young scientists, people to feel in their way when people stand up and say, look at me, mm. you know, I definitively know how to do this and it was a plan all along around there. They need connection to the reality. Right? But what you can give them is, this is how you create a framework to avoid the mistakes that affect other business and hopefully give you the best chance of success. Yes. I think what's really interesting about that is that you've focused pretty much entirely on the individual and their own self-awareness mm -hmm. and their own development. And I think it's something that, that really resonates with me because I, you know, I see both in my own career and um, in the people that I work with, you see people progress through their career. And I think there's a, there's a perception early in your career 
that it's all about skills, it's about learning things. And yeah. to an extent, that's true early on. Yeah. But you get to a point relatively quickly in your career, and very quickly as an entrepreneur, I think, where actually it's not about what you know how to do, it's about you as an individual and yeah. those things that you talk yeah. about, resilience, reflection. Indeed. I mean, the reason is, if you think about the bit we're trying to get people to avoid, you know, when I worked in the area of precision, personalised medicine, you've heard, right? Yeah. Personalisation. You, you may have seen the thing I did with, uh, on the bottom line on the BBC about personalisation with, with Evan Davis. And, and I was trying to explain to them about personalisation because they keep confusing it with customization, which is a means of... <laughs> You know, selling more things transactionally to an ever large group of people. Mm. When you think of personalization, right, you think I'm going off a tangent here, but I'm not. When you That's think about right. personalization, you know, I think employees are best when they have this sense of self-awareness and how they fit in, how a role is going to help them be successful and how they can help the company be successful. Mm -hmm. Personalization, right? And it's not just a construct of experiences, right? There has to be um, yes, a supply bit, a transactional piece, your skills yes. as you transact, but something is truly personalised only when it has a framework, and think of personal, a society, but like we're a set of rules, an environment, a culture that enables the linking of the supply of skills with the experience of the people who participate on an individual basis. Mm -hmm. You're a part of a team here at Milgrafi, but you're an individual, Yes, ultimately. Around that. You can force people into teams as much as you like, but a, a series of great individuals do not make a team, right? But a series of individuals who understand how to best get to an end point come to rapid realisation that you need to work in a team. Mm -hmm. They may have different yes. roles in the team and they may have different values of the roles in the team, but you need to work as a team. So that experiential piece, and this is what you're talking about, you know, the skills are one thing, you develop the skills, but ultimately what do we want when someone comes to work for, for, work for you in a role? You want someone who's able to put those skills into context. And the context is, for example, how you deliver with, your, with a group of colleagues, how your technology changes the experience of the users the customers, etc., they're going to, to do it, how it impacts society mm. around there. So you, it's not selfish. You're looking at everything from a personalization perspective. And I think people work at their best when they are best as individuals, well-rounded individuals, around their understanding the context of everything around them. Yes. Around I don't think being an individual is a bad thing. I'm a, an individual, right, and a high-profile individual, etc. But I work constantly just within the environment of teams and the real strength in my career if you distill it down was I had real context I think I've taken science how does it translate to technology market application and then I've gone beyond that and how does it impact society around there so you think patient impact regulatory manufacturing all of the things how does it economically change things and by putting everything into context that's why I have the career I now have mm -hmm. I, if I'd have just focused on biotechnology narrow and narrow molecular biology getting narrow and narrow and narrow I'd have been an expert which is perfectly valid career yes, yes. but you wouldn't have had the type of career that I'd had you wouldn't be an entrepreneur you wouldn't be an influencer you know, and you wouldn't you wouldn't uh, be a CEO yes no, understood and that I know you're involved in other things outside of biotech, particularly yeah. as an investor and an advisor, um, but that's always been the theme as well. Through the, There's always been that theme of biotech and drug discovery and therapeutics yeah. and things like that. It started, um, really, because my, my undergraduate is in chemistry, and yeah. my PhD is in biotechnology, but it was very multidisciplinary. It was sensors, biological fabrication, chemistry, de you know, various detection, automation, etc. So it's very multidisciplinary. The application was bio. Mm. around there so 
I started to, and that was the benefit of that PhD, was learning a lot. But it takes a critical mass. So when I came out of my PhD, my postdoc, even through, it, for me, it took quite a lot of time to accrue the critical mass of knowledge in sufficient disciplines, and then the context. Remember, in any of those disciplines, experts would beat me for the job. Right. Around there. But what I was able to do was link them all together in terms of application and then put it into context. And the context, if you're going to a company who's developing a product to market or wants to start a new business, etc. around there, context is everything. Mm -hmm. And that's most valuable. But it took me quite a long time in order to build critical, I call it critical mass yes. of, of knowledge and experience and context to be able to position myself for the roles. Yes, makes sense. So there's a certain amount of... Um uh, of core knowledge, core experience you need before you can see those relationships. Yeah, and that's the challenge for the young, younger people. I work yes. with a lot of young entrepreneurs, young people, is they want it now. Right. Right, and they're under pressure to have it now. And they're under pressure to push their CVs further than they are and jump up the ladders and all of these kinds of things around there. And it's a, a pressure I didn't have because of the background that I came from, mm -hmm. the, the, the journey that I described. I didn't, never felt the pressure that uh, I needed to achieve. Yes. Sense. It gave me more time to think, well, I'm stumbling along, learning things here, but whatever I'm doing, I'm starting and finishing, getting something. I may then start something else and finish that, but then eventually I was able to pull it all together. Mm -hmm. yeah, Which is where that yeah. reflection was, yeah. was helpful, Indeed. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so a two-part question here. Um, you are in a company that is at the cutting edge of, of science and uh, very involved in the UK and the Cambridge biotech scene, if you like. What are the things that What's your view on where the, the biotech sector is at currently in the UK and what are the things that excite you? And then the second part is how does that link and, and what's next to Mogrify, for Mogrify, sorry. Yeah, so what's really exciting, and I gave an opening address at a, a conference earlier this year around there and, uh, and, and what I was trying to get across to people is you know, that my career has kind of paralleled this move towards you know an, an R&D paradigm that's really based on integration of disciplines you know computer natural physical sciences mm -hmm. within a commercial paradigm so these sort of interfacial technologies if you like and the the concept of learning in verticals or innovating in verticals has changed we're moving to more open innovation models etc and the reason this is important right is that you're now starting to get people from academia and industry to think about how hardware wetware software you know, environmental, regulatory policy, so, you, know, so, you know, tax policy, etc. How this all comes together, how you can have a major impact on some of the biggest issues that are facing humanity. Mm. And in, you know, out there at the moment, you know, you've got politicians who are so focused on the tactical that they, they can't see the real strategic issues that are coming in the right. world. Is you know, Think about it. How are we going to feed, fuel and heal a population that in the West is critically aging? about an hour a day life expectancy increase for people in the, okay. in the West. But in the developing world, five hours per day increase around there. And it's the rate of change in the developing world that's actually going to have the biggest impact because on the demand for resources, mm -hmm. right? The the people will be living longer, quicker in, in developing nations. Pressures on resources, healthcare, cost affordability, delivery of healthcare. We're already starting to see it in the in the West, where effectively age is plateauing, starting to plateau, you know, it's a massive. You know, US spends twenty five percent of GDP on health, and right. forty million people don't have healthcare coverage. Yes. So you've got these major issues of feed, fuel, and heal, 
an aging population. And the solutions that have been adopted, globalization around there, which have made access to a lot of things cheaper, etc. But you're now getting the negative structural unemployment mm. around there, people feeling they haven't benefited from globalization, etc. And it leads to issues in the States, it leads to Brexit issues, all of these, all of these kinds of things around there. These are massive issues. And the only way you're actually going to solve them in healthcare, and I use healthcare as an example, is by this fully integrated holistic approach. Understanding the genetic, epigenetic, environmental, microbiome, etc., all of the associations with disease, predisposition, onset, progression, drug response, etc., etc., that will help you in this personalized medicine, help the pharmaceutical company reduce drugs, drug development times, develop more drugs targeted to particular points of intervention in particular patient groups, mm-hmm. so called precision medicine. Yes. That's the supply side. But that won't solve it either. Right. But until you deal with the experiential side, which is us, mm. citizens, that are educated about the healthcare impacts of, you can't all be PhDs, but they, you know, we can't solve, you know, we can't understand all the things that pharmaceutical companies do, but you can understand how your environment and behavior impacts the evolution of your health from mm. cradle to grave. Around there. And that has to be done you know, with technology, you know, around there through technology, you know, mobile phones, through iPads, sensors in the home, where you collect telemetry about how people are living, and then you have the right, the right policy and framework to encourage people to drive the right behaviours aligned with education. Yes. Because until you start getting earlier diagnosis around there, and people actually taking their own intervention behaviour to stop disease happening around there, or complying to treatments once they've got them, all you'll get is better drugs coming to people, right. but they'll still come to them at that point in time with mm-hmm. their disease cycle. They won't participate in it, and it will give them better, then the cost won't come down. Right. So if you want to solve healthcare, all of these disciplines, and at the top level, you know, biotech, pharma, those kinds of agricultural for the feed and fuel, they can be solved from a top down. But the piece how it interacts with the seven billion people mm-hmm. has to be done through this very multidisciplinary approach and interdisciplinary business models, yes. how it links with the tech-based business model. Is it as a service around there? Is it devices you buy over the counter in boots? Is it places where you go into that, you, know, you go into a clinic that's associated to a gym that mm-hmm. links you immediately yeah. telemetry to a hospital? Right? So it's a much more integrated sort of holistic system. And why I'm excited is these technologies in my career have gone from being just discrete verticals yeah, some of them won Nobel prizes and been amazing, but now no one thinks of it like that. They think it's it's holistic. How will all this stuff integrate to have a real impact? And that's mm-hmm. what got me excited about Moglify. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, you've you've got the output is how you turn old, you know, how you have how do you regenerate tissue, right? Disease tissue into healthy tissue. How do you fundamentally correct disease? How do you change fundamentally the manufacturing, the affordability of producing these cures that are now happening? around there, you take a cell, correct it, put it back. How do you make that scalable? Mm-hmm. Right? It's a great, you're curing people, but you can't ever make a profit out of it. Right. So therefore, no one's gonna make it. Yes. <laughs> so it's a fundamental technology, and then it links massive amounts, decade plus of biological data with computational data around there, so big data science approaches, and then starts having people, how you analyze it and apply it to disease biology, in a pretty agnostic way, our raison d'etre is not to get up and cure one disease. It's about how do we have an impact across the whole cycle. Yes, so, for, so for me, the ability to do this type of company has only come about now after the 25 mm. plus years I've been in 
the industry. Now, mm. whether we do it, different matter, in a different matter, right? I think we've got a good shot. Yes. But, you know, but, <laughs> but, you know get no guarantees or anything like that. But to me, that's what's exciting. And you see other companies out there, right? And look what Helix is doing. Fantastic. A young student business that came out of my Cambridge University Entrepreneurs Competition that I funded at the beginning with a bit of grant, mm-hmm. supported them. That's gone from nothing, a scientist to a you know, 200 million market cap company. More importantly, therapies in the clinic, repositioned drugs against rare diseases, patients who've never had any treatment options before. Mm. And the only way it could have been done, artificial intelligence, combinatorial chemistry, linking with gene expression analysis, entrepreneurial business model that brings the cons- the supply side and sell side together yeah. around there and applying it differently to get around this long convoluted regulatory yes. sort of approach. Yeah. So, so there's a couple of things you're talking yeah. about there, this, this integration of disciplines, but also yeah. this shift in mindset, I suppose, from healthcare yes. to health. Yes, exactly. Mm. Moving away from it to be just a tactical means of solving you know, the pharmaceutical industry's blockbuster paradigm, how you turn that on its head. And it's very important that you do that around there. This new pharmacopoeia is impressive around there, but it's not going to solve healthcare economics. Mm-hmm. It'll solve pharmaceutical share prices. Yes. And it will give, by a side product, people better outcomes for the disease that they're diagnosed with at the point they're diagnosed. But unless it links to all of the other stuff, it won't fundamentally change people's experience of life, mm-hmm. around there, and it won't change the healthcare economics. Yes. And you mentioned Mogrify, so you've gone from one person in February to a team yeah, we're now. Nearly, we're nearly 40 now, Yes, um, around there, and we're, we're hiring another 20, 25 at the moment over the next sort of three, four, five, six months. It's exciting there. times. Yeah, it is exciting times, and we're just really excited because we've got continuity of capital for quite a long time mm-hmm. around there and stuff like that, so I think if we continue to deliver around there, then we'll, you know, this business has an opportunity to, to fly. Well, Darren, we wish you the best of that. You're welcome. Thank welcome. you very much, Thanks Peter. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on Careers in Discovery. And don't forget to subscribe for more insight into the world of drug discovery and R&D. Do take a look at our sponsors, Singular Talent, and their mission to make hiring better for companies and individuals in drug discovery and R&D. You can find them at www.singulartalent.io. See you next time.